775. Uh, and we've looked at chapters 1 and 2 already, and now we're jumping into chapter 3. In chapter 1, God calls uh, to Jonah and says, Rise, go to the city of Nineveh, and call out against it. And Jonah says, No. <laughs> Uh, and goes the opposite way. And so he gets on a boat, and God hurls a storm at Jonah, and then the sailors hurl him off the boat, and then he's sinking down to the bottom of the ocean uh, when the, the grips of death are wrapped tightly around him, and then bam, uh, God sends a fish to swallow him, and while in the belly of the fish, he's praying, and then the Lord uh, has the whale hurl him out onto the seashore, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, we see Jonah, fish vomit and all, is about to get a do-over. You ever needed a do-over? You ever needed a second chance? Um, a mulligan, if you've been a, a golfer at any time, I know I have. Uh, Cyrus Curtis, who once owned the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, it was, it was the, uh, one of the most widely circulated magazines in America from 1897 uh, to 1960s. Uh, he, he, in his office... Uh, had a sign that said, very simply, yesterday ended last night. <laughs> Thank you. Yesterday ended last night. Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> okay. But it was this, this powerful reminder that every day is a new day. That every day is a new beginning. And Jeremiah says it even better in Lamentations 3, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and His mercies never cease in their new every morning. And so I don't know if you need a second chance this morning. Every, every, every day is a second chance. Every day is a do-over. Every breath is a second chance. Every sunrise is a reason to hope. But this morning, we're going to look at Jonah's do-over in Jonah 3. And so please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let every man... Turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Father, we come to you now. And I come feeling inadequate to bring the message. Inadequate that you would use uh, a sermon from me. But Lord, as you used even Jonah to reach this nation, 
Would you use me like him and have a, a similar response that a revival would even begin here in this congregation? A revival would begin here uh, in this city? But a revival would first begin in my own heart. And so, Lord, we ask for you to speak powerfully. Pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. Well, we come back into the book of Jonah, and it sounds very similar, right? It feels like deja vu is happening. Uh, we look at verse 2, and it says very simply uh, in, in the Hebrew, it just says, rise, go. There's three simple letters in the Hebrew, rise, go. It's very short, but it's a very powerful uh, message for Jonah to hear. And then Jonah's response in the Hebrew is also very similar. It would say, rose, Jonah went. And so it's just very much of God is now saying, you're getting the do-over, and here's the second chance, rise, go. And Jonah hears, rose, Jonah went. And we have this deja vu going on, because in chapter 1, God calls Jonah to rise and go to Nineveh and to preach against that city, and he doesn't get up and go. He goes the other way, right? Uh, And we remember, the capital of Assyria is the city of Nineveh, and this is modern-day Iraq. And Nineveh was the greatest city the world has yet to see at this time. It takes three whole days to walk through a city. I mean, that, that, that's a long walk. Three whole days to walk through a city is a very long walk. It's a huge city. It is a monstrous city at this time that the world had never seen before. I mean, the, the city with, that had spikes with men's heads on it, and then with the military might and this economic might, the question would be, like, how could you... How could you take that city? How could you siege that city? How would God ever, ever bring down a city like that? And why? Why would he use just one man to do it? I mean, the question is, who could change a city like that? Who could change a city with the government so bent on its military force and greed and lust for more and power and land and, and this growth with no thoughts to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, how will God reach them? Will God reach the Ninevites with this one rebellious man, Jonah? Will Jonah's voice be sufficient to siege this great city? I mean, you might be thinking, maybe if God uses fire to come down, or maybe if if he uses Jonah and he, he makes his voice come thundering through, or maybe if God sends an earthquake that will wake up the city. No way could he just use this little man, Jonah. I mean, it's, this is kind of a thought that most of us have, right? You know, you know, what change can I really accomplish? The world's too far gone. You know, what, what hope would I actually bring? What, what, what value am I going to bring to this city, to this situation? You know, the sin is too great. The problem is too huge. You know, what could little old me do? That is the death of our souls, if we believe that. For one man, if God willed it, and we see it, one man could change a nation. One man could change a continent, and he could be trampling it down with just God's voice speaking through them. But we can't imagine it, right? It's far too great a, a, a task for us to actually see this happening, to see a government change, to see congressmen listening, to see a president repenting. We, we, it's hard for us to even, even imagine that, but to have a king repenting, the one who has all the power in the world, there's no way that could happen. 
Dorothy Sayers, who is a, a Christian writer, uh, at one point said that the sin of our times now is not power-hungry materialism, and it's not a permissive spirit of lawlessness, but rather the sin of our times is a sin that believes in nothing. That's the problem. The sin of the ages is the sin that believes in nothing, that cares for nothing, that seeks to know nothing, that interferes with nothing, and therefore enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which you will die. That is a very, very powerful commentary on our society and saying really the sin of our ages is the sin of apathy. The sin is that there's nothing bigger in my life that I would actually give myself to and care for, that I would actually die for anything because I care about nothing. Let me ask yourself that question. What would you die for? What hill would you die on? Is there one? And that's the scary side of our, our Christianized atheism that I think a lot of us have. You know, we, we believe there is a God. We believe, uh, we believe in right and wrong. We believe God can help us work through problems, but we don't believe that he can actually enter in and change our lives. This is what some have called moralistic, therapeutic deism is really what the Christian church, the American church has right now. Moralistic, we believe in right and wrong. Therapeutic, that God can, act, can actually give us some type of comfort and healing. Deism that God is the great clockmaker that has wound up the earth and sits back and watches and doesn't intervene and doesn't intercede. Thankfully, that's not even remotely true. Can God use one man? Absolutely, he does it. He even uses, can he use an unqualified broken sinner? Absolutely. I mean, look at God's track record. Look at who he, he's used. He uses Abraham, the doubter who doesn't believe God's promise that he'll have all these children, so he seeks it out another woman. He uses Jacob, who we heard about last week, who's the usurper, that vile crook. God changes him. He uses David, the murderer, the adulterer. He uses Peter, who denies Jesus three times. He uses Paul, who's killed tons of Christians. I think it's funny, a few years back I went to Ohio to go to a funeral, and the common refrain amongst every, all of the family there, when they saw me, and I hadn't seen them for maybe 10 years, was, of all the people, you became a pastor. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't one person, it was multiple. <laughs> of all the kids, you became a pastor. Interesting. Now, <laughs> apparently God likes to use the weak to shame the strong. He wants to get the glory for his work. And now speaking of who God uses who he wants and accomplishing what he wants and how he wants. Did you guys catch Jonah's fantastic sermon? I mean, it is wondrous. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've ever stumbled upon a small group of people and stumbled into what you might say to them and how you might tell them about Jesus, uh, let alone this military might that, that's, that might kill you for saying anything threatening and have no hope in your message. But his message is in verse 4, Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his sermon. He has an eight-word sermon that says, Yet in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> There's no mention of hope. There's no mention of grace. There's no mention if they turn and repent, God will relent of his wrath. 
This is all they got. And Spurgeon says this is like the great bell is being rung that's tolling out the, the, the death toll of a criminal who's about to be executed. And it's the trumpet of the judge just saying God's wrath is coming. Deal with it. What do you think of that? Does that sound harsh? Does that sound a little crazy coming from this man? We need the wrath. We need to hear of God's wrath to make mercy as sweet as it is. Mercy can become typical, it can become expected if we don't actually see wrath as real and as a possibility. Jonathan Edwards says, If there be really a hell of such dreadful and never-ending torments of which multitudes are in great danger and to which a greater part of men in Christian countries do actually from generation to generation fall into for lack of a sense of hell's terribleness, then why is it not proper for those who have the care of souls to take great pains to make men aware of it? Why should they not be told as much truth as can possibly be? If I'm in danger of going to hell, I should be glad to know as much as I possibly can of the dreadfulness of it. Edwards is saying, I want to know about hell. We need to know about hell. There's a more modern version of this, and it comes from an atheist of all places, and you've probably heard this said before, but it deserves mentioning again. It comes from a, a man named Penn Gillette, and he's from that magician duo, Penn and Teller. Have you seen their acts, or maybe seen on TV or something? But he has this YouTube video of him saying this that has, has moved around the nation and says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He's an atheist. He's saying, I don't respect people who don't tell others about Jesus, about heaven and hell. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that's not really worth telling them because it might make it socially awkward, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about that? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, at, some, at a certain point, I'm going to tackle you and save you from that. This is the atheist speaking, uh, someone who doesn't believe. But God's given him this common grace of logic and saying, if hell is real, we should be talking about it. Jesus talked about it all the time. <laughs> He's, he, he talks about it more than anyone else in the Bible. It's a physical place, a, a real place. And if you don't put your trust in Christ, Jonah's words come true that you'll be overthrown. We don't know what overthrown meant for Nineveh. It could have meant from another country. It could have meant from a, from a famine, from a, a natural disaster. But for us, hell has been laid out pretty clear. Matthew 13, Jesus says, it's a fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When I first became a Christian, I was a teenager. And like most of you, when you become a Christian, you, you, you have this huge load off of your back because you've done some pretty bad things, maybe. Uh, and so I felt freedom. I felt relief that uh, all of my sins have been paid for. And then about six months after my conversion, I was going on a, a church camp. And I started reading this, this, this verse in Matthew that said, Jesus has, has died and forgiven all of your sins except for one. 
that there is one sin for which Jesus will not pay for. It's the unforgivable sin. It's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This comes from uh, Matthew 12, a chapter earlier. It says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And that verse means the world to me because it broke me. I mean, it crushed me. I read it at a church retreat, and it cut me open. I'm thinking to myself, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, when I was angry at God, I, I said some pretty bad things. I mean, I, I hated God. I, I was shouting at Him, yelling at Him. I cussed Him out at one point. I was just so angry and saying, why, God? Why would you take this from me? I hate you. So I went to my pastor at the camp and I brought the verse to him and I said, is this what this verse means? And he thought we were having a theological discussion and said, yeah, that's, that's what this verse means. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there is no hope. And he left and I lost it. I mean, it's like a five-day camp and for two or three of the five days, I'm just in tears the whole time. While everyone else is out playing, having fun, laughing at camp, I'm thinking, and I actually said to myself, I am going to hell. And according to my pastor, according to scripture, there's nothing I can do about it. So after a while, I went to my pastor again, the end of camp, and I said, this can't be true. You've got to help me out. There's, there's, there's got to be something I can do. And he's starting to see that there's something more to the, than just a theological discussion going on. He, he picks up my confusion and says, why do you think you've committed this sin? And I told him how I've been blaspheming God and yelling at him, being angry at him. And I just remember him giving me a big old bear hug and saying, no, 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 no. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. This verse is about the Pharisees attributing Jesus' works to the devil, of saying that the Holy Spirit's work is actually the work of demons. And I just remember this huge weight lifted off me. I felt like I couldn't breathe for a while, and all of a sudden I'm like, <gasps> freedom. I mean, just this sweet relief. And I just remember thinking, that's, I mean, that, that's so weird. I, I, I don't like God, but I would never accuse his works of being part of the, day, uh, the Satan's works. It's like, the, I don't know anyone who would say that. <laughs> Later I realized that that verse has a more fuller meaning uh, and that in some sense we all walk that line of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This passage isn't on the unforgivable sin, but this, this time in my life pushed me to the edge to actually seeing the reality of hell, the possibility of it. And I was frightened. I mean, I was crushed. But it made the beauty of God's work through His Son Jesus all the more sweet. This is the hard edge of mercy that we see here, that God has thrown Jonah overboard. He has swallowed him with a whale, and he has spit him back up. And now Jonah proclaims to the city of Nineveh, 40 days, and the city will be overthrown unless you repent. We need the wrath 
We need the message of God's judgment to, to make God as just as he is, as right as he is, but also to make the mercy as sweet as it is. How sweet it is to be saved from that. What happens to the people of Nineveh? We see their repentance in verses 5 through 9. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. And from the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God, and let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is a picture of repentance. The people of Nineveh, the nation, repents here. I mean, do you know what repentance means? This is kind of one of those words that we use in church all the time, and we use it for a lot of different things, and what happens a lot of times is when we just assume everyone knows what it means, it gets lost, and we don't actually know. I think our usual approach to sin is we have you know, this remorse, and we say, I can't believe I've done that. I can't believe I've done that. And then it's followed by this, this promise or resolve, you know, I promise I'll do better next time. I promise I'll, I'll get it right. And we call that repentance. I think we want to define repentance by its fruits. You know, I'm repenting, and so I'm not buying the new car. I'm repenting, and so I'm going to spend more time with my kids. I'm repenting, and so I'm going to spend more time in God's word. But repentance is not this observable behavior. The fruit is. But we confuse repentance with the fruit. Repentance is this um, essentially a relational uh, aspect that has more to do with how you relate to God. It precedes what the behavior actually is. It's this heart issue, a change of heart. Not simply a change of the actions, but first and foremost, it's the change of heart. And if the heart doesn't change, then the actions are fake. The actions are fiction. The passage here does have an outer change. There is, there is an, uh, an outer change like this odd nationwide fast. Uh, and did you catch that the, even the animals fast? I think the, the king got a little zealous in his resolve and made even the animals fast because I don't think animals in their fasting can have a change of heart. But what happens here is when they're fasting and, and wearing sackcloth, that is not the that is not re- now requiring God to forgive them. This isn't their action to get God to forgive them. Uh, this was just the evidence of their particular repentance. Their hearts are changed, and this is just the external profession of their inner repentant heart. But I want to ask the question, what does repentance look like? You, mo- you, you want to know this. You know, what does repentance look like? Is my repentance genuine? Is it just feeling really sorry? And feeling really bad? Well, Judas felt really sorry. I mean, he had, he had so much remorse, he ends up killing himself. So is that it? What distinguishes the way Nineveh, how does Nineveh get it right and Judas get it wrong? Thomas Watson is very helpful here. He's a Puritan from the 1600s, and he wrote a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And in it, he says there are six, six, 
stages of repentance. Some of you are thinking, wow, <laughs> I've got maybe one down. Um, six stages of our repentance, and it, it, very profound. The very first stage is this. See your sin. Again, Captain Obvious comes here and says, <laughs> see your sin. But th- we actually need that because we have so many blind spots. And if we actually see our sin for what it is, we actually can see it. That is a, bu- that, that is a beautiful thing. And that is God's gracious work in your heart to actually see that you have sin. To actually see the rebellious heart that you have. When the prodigal was out living his life, the, there's a part in, the, in Luke 15 where it says that he came to himself and he actually saw himself for who he was. He, you can actually see your sin for what it is, this ugly parasite, and that you now, now you can look at it and work on it. Now you can have uh, this, this, this change of heart. And so if there is no sight of sin, there is no repentance. The king calls out their country's sin. He sees it. He says, from the violence that is in his hands, he calls their, their sin. There's, there's, obviously, there's other atrocities this country has committed that's in the history books, but he calls out their particular atrocity, their particular sin of the violence that's in their hands, of, the, of them plundering other nations and taking what's not theirs, of them uh, violently taking stuff from other nations. And this is just a picture, uh, a microcosm of the, the bigger picture of their sin. And so he's calling out their sin. He sees it. The second stage of repentance is sorrow over your sin. Not over the fact that you got caught. Sorrow over the sin. You know, the the self-righteous, the smug don't grieve over their sin. They may see it, but they're not hurt by its presence. Third stage is that you confess your sin. And that sounds odd coming third, because you would think that might be the first stage. But you need the first two. You, You need to be able to see it. You need to be able to sorry for it before you ever confess it. It took the other two to make this possible. And the king does confess his sin, and he does what many of us don't do. Uh, he confesses and owns his sin. And I think a lot of times in our confessions, I don't know if it's about you, even when I confess to others, I, I apologize to others or I apologize to God, but usually they're laced with some type of defense, some self-righteousness and saying, I'm sorry, but you kind of made me mad. <laughs> you ever said that to one another? We say it to God, too. We say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, God, but if you would have given me a quieter weekend, uh, then I wouldn't have lost it on my family. I'm sorry, God, but you made me work overtime. I'm sorry, God, but and you deserve some of the blame. And we, we kind of blame shift in this, in this way. The king doesn't do that. He owns his sin and confesses his own sin. Fourthly, for real repentance to happen, there has to be shame over your sin. Now, remember, this is very... Important. It's not shame over yourself. It's over the sin. That the, sh- the sin is as shameful as it is. Adam and Eve were right to, to have fig leaves to cover because they were embarrassed. They were dirty. It's, so it's shame over the sin. And this actually uh, fuels the fifth stage, which is a hatred of your sin. Again, not hating yourself, but hating the sin. John Owen talks about creating new ways to mortify and to kill our sins. That's not possible unless you hate your sin. It's not possible unless you hate the sin itself for what it is. I think uh, sometimes uh, with Knox, uh, I'll discipline him and tell him, you know, don't hit your brother Jordan. Have I ever said that? Yeah. 
Sometimes I'll discipline him. I'll put him in timeout, and he'll come out, and I'll say, now say sorry to Jordan. And sometimes he'll come out and go, sorry. <laughs> right? Yeah. Does he hate the sin? <laughs> or does he hate that he got caught? <laughs> I think for many of us, we hate that we got caught. We don't hate the sin. Do we hate that we're hurting someone? Do we hate that the, the destructive effects of our life to other people, or do we hate that we got caught for it? Unless there's hatred for sin, there is no repentance. And what does the king do? When the king says this beautiful line, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. Who knows? I mean, it's beautiful. He says he's, he's, he's sorry over his sin, and it doesn't matter what happens to him. He's sorry that the, over the sin. It doesn't matter if God actually repents of, uh, or relie- relieves uh, the, the hatred over him. He just is hating and shameful over his sin. sin. He, he wants to quit regardless if he gets relief. He's not sad that he got caught. He's just grieved that he's done this terrible thing. And he's saying, who knows, maybe God will relent, but I hate this sin and I want it out of my life. It's kind of like Gollum and says, go away and never come back. He hates the sin so much that he's saying, go away and never come back. He doesn't want the sin anywhere near his life. And then lastly, the last stage of repentance, Thomas Watson finally says, is turning from the sin. We want to make that the first step, turning from the sin. He says this is the last step of repentance. And that order is huge, that the reformation is last, the change is last, the fruit is last that all other five steps are instrumental in true change. Now, change does happen. The tree is going to produce different fruit, but instead of going straight to step six and saying, you know, sorry, I'll quit lying, or sorry, uh, I'll quit yelling at my children, or sorry, I'll quit lusting, that's ignoring the heart of the matter. Look at what Jonah preached to them. He preached this hard edge of mercy and says that without the hope of the gospel, you are doomed. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will relent. And we have to walk through the first five stages before change ever happens. To see our sin, to sorrow over it, to confess it, to feel the shame of it, to hate it. And then true change happens. But hear the king's call here. I love this. Who knows? Who knows? Without Jonah giving him a word of hope, he still hoped. Who knows? And for you, who know the apex of history, who know that Jesus Christ died in your place. You know that 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 offer is for you. But we could say, who knows? Maybe God will count his body for mine. Who knows? Maybe God will take Jesus' body of work and credit it to me. Who knows? Maybe God will give me a do-over. Come to him now, trust in his blood, and who knows, this day our sins may be blotted out. Who knows? This day you may be washed in the blood of Christ and forgiven for all your past. Who knows? All of it. That hell is real. But that Christ has quenched hell for you. That you have been delivered from the clutches of hell. From the pangs and the agonies. And you could come and say, I've been delivered from hell. I've escaped hell. God offers his abundant, never-ending, always-and-forever love 
for the people of Nineveh? He does relent in verse 10, and he offers it to you today. And who knows? The miracle in this book is not that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and lived. The miracle in this book is that a whole nation repents, that a whole nation is reached by the gospel. So for you today, who has God called you to? Maybe you're like Jonah, and God has said to you in some way, rise and go. Maybe he's pushing you towards something, to turn to something, maybe to turn from something. Maybe you need to repent of what Dorothy Sayers calls the sin of our day, that you believe in nothing, hope in nothing, expect nothing, and won't die for nothing. Maybe you're in the spot where you need to take a closer look at your heart, uh, a moral inventory, a deeper look at your repentance, and ask, am, am, am I more proud of my, after repenting, or am I more broken? Because the psalmist says, those who go through these six stages of repentance will end with you having a broken and a contrite spirit. Does that define you? Who knows? Maybe God will relent and count Jesus' work for yours. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to wonder like the king.